Hello and welcome to another episode of Blitz Book Club. I'm your host, Belle. And I'm Alexa. And we're so happy to see you guys again. We know it's been a long time, but we're back, better than ever. And today we're going to talk about speculative fiction and Emily St. John Mandel's The Sea of Tranquility. But before we begin, um, we would just like to acknowledge the Bedigal people that are the traditional custodians of this land on which the meeting takes place. And we'd like to pay our respects to the elders both past and present and extend that respect to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening in today. So, Belle, uh, we're here to talk about, so we thought we'd just cover speculative fiction um, as a genre. Um, It's kind of an umbrella genre, so it it covers a lot of things. Um, But we would say probably, like, when you think of speculative fiction, the thing that comes to mind is, like, science fiction. Mm. Um, Margaret Atwood was the one who, she didn't coin the term, um, that was in the 1940s, um, but she's kind of the one who's defined it in, like, the modern sense, um, with, obviously... The Handmaid's Tale, and then kind of gone from there, really. Yes, some other notable proponents of the genre include Ursula K. Le Guin or Octavia Butler, um, who have kind of both dabbled in the science fiction genre, but in a way that is very kind of close to home. And we would kind of say that speculative fiction as a genre combines a lot of uh, sci-fi, fantasy, dystopian elements um, to project a vision of the future that um, uh, is not completely alien to us, Mm. as, for example... Um, Star Wars. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> Star Wars definitely feels like it is like sci-fi, but it's also fantasy because um, you know it's that age-old argument of there are no characters in Star Wars that are human because they're all technically aliens. Yeah, right. So it kind of it's um, the worlds in the speculative fiction novels, um, or at least the modern ones. They're recognisable to us. Yes. Uh, we know them. There's not quite the element of every single landmark has to have a different name. Um, and that's definitely true of Emily St. John Mandel's novels. Yes, absolutely. And she is a very interesting author. I think I first encountered her when I read Station Eleven would probably be about five years ago now. Um, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Five yeah. years ago when it came out. Yeah. Um, I remember reading it and I was really drawn in by obviously the Shakespeare element um I'm a big Shakespeare fan but who could have foreseen that her work would be so prophetic because Station Eleven does center around the aftermath of a great pandemic that essentially destroyed like 98% of the world's population um and is about how people uh come together and try to form some sort of civilization after that um, event. And you've got kids growing up without any understanding of the internet or even like running water, to be honest. So it's very uh, interesting, her vision um, of a pandemic like that all those years before. And now, after the pandemic, she has released The Sea of Tranquility. 
And she describes her work interestingly. I don't know, Alexi, if you want to go into that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so in interviews about Sea of Tranquility, she talks about it as like a sci-fi auto-fiction novel. Mm. So like basically um, taking elements from her life. And she kind of, in the interview, she she references the other novels as like that sort of attempt um, as well, like borrowing elements from her own life. Interesting. Mm, which I think is interesting for specifically for the speculative fiction genre because, you know, you have a lot of authors who borrow from their daily lives. Um, for example, like the funny one being like Tolkien who wrote his friends mm. into his novels. Um, so it's not a unique concept, but certainly unique in the sense that she's created a character um, that is almost exactly like her, right? With a book tour stopped because of a pandemic. Right. Um, so it's interesting to see how that sort of influences her novels. And I will say as well, I read Station Eleven in 2020. Um, oh, okay, right, wow. Yeah, so it was right in the right in the middle. I think we had just like lockdown had just pretty much finished, and I was in Canberra for a holiday, um, and I picked it up, and it was so interesting because it was about a pandemic, mm. and we were currently in the midst of one, and I thought, wow, how has she done this? And definitely that's sort of one of the ones that skyrocketed her to fame after that because of, you know, inadvertently predicting yeah. quite a, like a worldwide catastrophe. Um, and it's got like a TV series now. Oh, really? So, yeah. Um, oh. So now, of course, off that fame, she's written these stories. And I think it's interesting that she's continued with the pandemic sort of genre um yeah i mean interesting but also not surprising also not surprising <laughs> like definitely you can see like it's a bit of a not formulaic per se but if it's autofiction it's based off her life it makes sense that you'd continue to write about something you know um although it was quite startling at points in this novel to be like <laughs> yeah COVID 19 in 2020 yeah. and you're like what yeah i think this was the first novel that i've read that references the covid pandemic explicitly mm. i think mm. I can't remember. I read a romance and oh, yeah. it was mentioned um, like, oh, coming out of lockdown, you know, we didn't get much time to socialize. But this is the probably the first one that I've actually registered it as a reference. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely it's just the yeah. landscape. You know, we don't think about it. But of course, COVID was 2019 was kind of the first sort of outbreaks of it. Mm. Um, so it's been almost yeah four or five years Jeez. or something since the beginning of this pandemic. Mm. Um which feels strange because we're still currently living with it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't feel like so long ago, but of course it is. I saw a really interesting article. I don't know if this is true, but it was discussing how after the Spanish flu epidemic, a lot of novels and, and stories and works of art didn't reference the Spanish flu. There mm. wasn't this, like, outpouring of uh, work concerning the Spanish flu like there would be for any other uh, world event. Mm. Um, and, like, we see that kind of stuff. Like, if something happens, like, immediately there's a document. There's a Netflix miniseries about it. True. There's, you know, a book deal. There's a um, movie being made automatically. Um, but for, like, the Spanish flu, for example, 
it just people didn't want to talk about it because mm-hmm. it was so traumatic that people just wanted to move on. They didn't want to be reminded of that time when they were like trying to escape through art and literature and things like that. So I wonder if we're going to experience a similar phenomenon Mm -hmm. uh, with COVID because, yeah, as you said, it has been like a good three or four years. um, And like, I really haven't, this is the first piece of of, like literature that I've seen that kind of like addresses it directly. Yeah. And I think, it's going to be interesting about, uh, you know, I definitely saw sort of movies and things all being set in 2019. Yes. Um, like before everything happened. So it's going to be interesting to see how in the, the near future, how movie directors and TV show people, how everyone's going to address, like, because, you know, most things tend to set it back a couple of years. Um, but we're in 2022 now. We're almost at 2023. Um, they can't keep going back to 2019 to set their things. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how fiction navigates it. And I think this is just the start. Um, ironically, again, um, she's a bit of a pioneer in the sense that this is the start of what I think will probably be tentative mm. tiptoeing around including COVID in your mm. novels. And I, I, I wonder about her usage of the term autofiction because it's not something that I would have normally associated with her works or speculative fiction as a genre at all um, because I kind of understood it more as um, the entire work kind of being centred around the author's personal experience and the characters and the main voice and the world um, being kind of from their perspective. So your Sally Rooney's, for example, mm-hmm. when obviously she's talking about her milieu and her um, kind of like uh, social environment. And that's why so many people have been able to relate to it from like the millennial um, or Z-lennial <laughs> genre or whatever, because they uh, can see that this is her lived experience and see it so clearly. And she kind of like goes to great lengths to represent that. Um yeah, I find it interesting, and I think we'll we'll get into a, a review of the book now. But my overall feeling was I was really looking forward to it because I like Station Eleven so much. But I felt like it was a bit cobbled together. I didn't feel like there was enough going on to tie these characters who are from all different places and times together in a way that was like satisfying for me. And I kind of felt like it was a bit of an attempt for her to capitalize on her popularity with the COVID stuff and with the pandemic stuff and kind of uh, gather together her fans who had read her other books by referencing those characters and then piece something together. And I was a little bit dissatisfied, but what do you think? Yeah, um... I because I was also quite a big fan of um, Station Eleven and then when it came out, The Glass Hotel. Um, And I am not a big fan of speculative fiction in general. So I was already apprehensive because Station Eleven, it had Shakespeare in it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. me too. That (laughs) was my major selling point. So I was like, you know what? I can and it, the, most of the plot is centered around different Shakespearean actors. So I was like, you know what? I can definitely navigate this. I enjoy this because a lot of it was tied to an interest I had interest in. <laughs> 
that's poor grammar. Um, but yeah, so, and then I read The Glass Hotel, which isn't speculative fiction. It's set in, um, it's about, it centers around, spoilers, um, a posse scheme and like the main character, Vincent, who is referenced in Sea of Tranquility. And I definitely agree that, so my favorite thing about Emily St. John Mendel's writing is that she gives you details and doesn't explain and then you learn about those details later yeah which is what she also did in this novel um and so she sometimes it works fantastically well where you get a detail about a character and you say years down the track he would reflect on this conversation when blah blah was in jail and you're like what that person's in jail (laughs) yeah but then you have to wait another half the book before you figure out why he's in jail and when he went to jail and you know and it's fantastic and it it really gives you that sort of that sense of suspense and dwelling with the characters and just the fun little tidbits of character um but because the entire novel was told in this very like short story-esque structure um jumping back and forth between moments in time um apparently she borrowed it from a novel she enjoyed cloud atlas by david mitchell um which i haven't read but i have heard fantastic things it's very good Mm. So, you know, but with that sense of structure, with the jumping back and forth in time, you don't get to dwell enough with the characters. So the fun little tidbits that usually makes her writing so strong and interesting in terms of developing character, you get one and then you have to wait like a whole couple of stories. It's not an, it's not quite so... Um, it's quite so similar to, you know, the structure of the chapters and you get it a couple of chapters down the line. It's a whole different story that you get the resolution of one other character's storyline, which I just felt was disingenuine to the characters. I would have wanted to dwell longer with certain characters um, and some characters were not made equal to others. Yes. So the really interesting ones that at least I found interesting, kind of got sidelined a little bit to um, focus on this auto-fiction of, you know, the author, who I liked, but not really in comparison to the others. I thought some of the other characters were more interesting. So overall, even though I think that the plot was, you know, the way that it was pulled off, I didn't see the twist coming. I really liked um, some of the elements to it. Again, I don't read a lot of speculative fiction, so I don't read a lot of time travel narratives. Um, A lot of reviews online talked about it being a very stereotypical time travel narrative, but Mm. because I don't read time travel, I don't really, I I didn't see it coming. Um, So I liked that aspect of it, and I always enjoy her plots. Um, But I definitely agree in the sense that it, it feels like hmm, what can I do with another pandemic novel? How can I make it a little bit different? Um, let's call, let's put it on the moon. Yep, yeah. Because uh, why not? Um, and live, let people live in dome cities. How cool. Um, and then, yeah, from there. And also, there just wasn't a lot of discussion of... Um, like different classes in terms of who stays on earth and who goes on the moon. Mm. Um, I feel like a lot of speculative fiction goes into like different, you know, advantage and disadvantage people. And it didn't really talk too much about that. Um, Like a couple mentions, but mm. so overall, yeah, I thought that it was good. Certainly not as well written 
as Glass Hotel or Station Eleven um, in the sense that you don't get to dwell with her characters, which I think is her strongest aspect of writing, um, that she builds these compelling, interesting, layered characters and this very unique prose style. But that you don't, because you don't get to spend so much time with them, it just feels a little bit like, oh, okay, that's what happened to them. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my overall review. And it's very short. That was my going to be my main point, was I feel like the reason why it didn't work and why she wasn't able to um, do what she did in station 11 was because of the size of the novel which kind of leads me to think that this perhaps was a bit of a not a rush job but not something not a project that she had as much passion for as station 11 Mm, she didn't dwell with it yes um yeah it was very short the um characters were not fleshed out to the same degree Oh, um, we are going to get into a few spoilers from this point. So our central character in this novel is called Gaspery and he's sort of a night watchman-esque character and he lives on one of the moon colonies um, and he gets involved in time travel via his sister who is a scientist with the Institute... The Time Institute. Time Institute. Fittingly named. Yes. um, On the moon... And he goes back in time because his sister has a theory that they are living in a simulation. And this, I thought, was not a good enough reason for the rest of the events to happen. It felt like it was very small. It was introduced very late in the novel, perhaps midway. Way too late. Yeah. Um, As kind of like the catalyst for why Gaspari is time-travelling. Um, We're introduced to the characters he visits first and we don't know that he's a time traveler. Um, And I thought that wasn't too bad of a a device. I thought that was a good way to kind of like build um, intrigue as to who this character is. Um, But essentially he is investigating a um, anomaly that his sister through her work at the Time Institute has picked up through the records um, wherein a few individuals in different times experience this phenomena of um, hearing the sound of a uh, airbus, I think. Airship. Airship. Airship taking off um, and uh, the feeling of, like, being in a forest. And basically it's this idea of, like, all of these moments in time have been, like, superimposed on each other and time is kind of, like, bleeding together and it's an anomaly and it shouldn't exist and therefore it's somehow proof that reality is a simulation. So uh, Gaspari, who is dissatisfied with his life on the moon, kind of like volunteers to go and travel in time to investigate. However, once he begins to time travel, he starts breaking a lot of the rules of time travel, um, which uh, I'm sure that a lot of veteran sci-fi time travel narrative readers will recognize as you can't change certain things, certain things need to happen, um, the butterfly effect, etc., um, and obviously he breaks these rules, <laughs> which I think is what some of the reviews were referencing, saying that it was a bit cliche because, like, the num- I-, I think the most common time travel narrative is about characters who like get mixed up in time and then they, you know, oh now I have to marry my grandfather or some, sh- you know, <laughs> um, so yeah, and um. 
the characters that he visits are very kind of briefly um, investigated, except for the author, who's a bit more fleshed out than the others, um, as we have kind of discussed. Um, were there any characters that you particularly liked who you thought would have um, warranted a bit more attention? Absolutely. I will read the first line of this novel um, because I love it. Edwin St. John St. Andrew, 18 years old, holding the weight of his double-sainted name across the Atlantic by steamship, eyes narrowed against the wind on the upper deck. He holds the railing with gloved hands, impatient for a glimpse of the unknown, trying to discern something, anything, beyond sea and sky, but all he sees are shades of endless grey. He's on his way to a different world. He's more or less the halfway point between England and Canada. I have been sent into exile, he tells himself, and he knows he's being melodramatic, but nonetheless, there's a ring of truth of it. Amazing line, yeah. right? Immediately, you're like, who is this? Mm. His double-sainted name. Yeah. It was such a captivating and interesting way to start this novel. And then, we don't get basically any more of him. No. And I just think for, like... I get that we're moving back and forth in time. So it's important that, you know, the the earliest timeline gets introduced first. Um, but it was such a shame that we didn't get to dwell with Edwin, who I thought was one of the most interesting ones because he, um, so he's in the early 1900s, um, 1907, I believe. Um, he fights in World War One. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he gets... Um, exiled as he says um by his family because he talks about the colonies and colonization and how he's like you know actually they didn't want us there this sucks because he's british um and you know and then he goes to canada and he experiences the same thing of meeting um you know indigenous people and going mm, they don't want us here um but i can't talk to them about it because obviously why would I be here if blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he's just got this really interesting, like, family dynamic and, you know, the fact that he just wants to sit and dwell. He doesn't want to do things. He, he has this sort of a new eye listlessness, um, but not like a bad listlessness. So, you know, I really would have enjoyed learning more about him. Um, and I think that with the time travel element. What I did like was that it wasn't necessarily centered around, I mean, eventually it ended up, did end up being centered around, um, like changing his own life. Um, Godspree? Gasprey. Gasprey. Um, but, you know, I did like that it wasn't originally centered around him meeting his past selves or trying to change, because I feel like a lot of time travel tries to change your own self, your own life. Um, where it was him, like, the fundamental rule he broke was that, and I liked how they explained it, in the sense that he knew the lives of every single person because he had to do intensive research in order to fit into the different worlds that he was visiting in the different times. So he knew every single thing about every single person in the room and had to stand by and let all of them die um, in their deaths, premeditated or, you know, he couldn't, if he could change a death, he couldn't do that. Like, he wasn't allowed to do that. That's the rule of time travel. So, that of, co of course, that's what he does. He tells um, the author, go home immediately, um, pretty much. Like, he disguises it in a clever little anecdote, but go home. 
Um, and so because, I guess, again, with that autofiction element, we dwell with the author. I hated that chapter so yeah. much. I was so bored. And it's boring because she's at home. In lockdown. In lockdown. And it doesn't do anything particularly interesting. Um, you know, we've got the idea of like, it's sort of Zoom meetings, but like with hyper reality. Yeah. So it's like kind of like a VR thing headset that you put on and you get transported to like a meeting room and it just felt trite it, especially because it was like very obviously borrowing a lot of the actual COVID-19 like political and social discourse and just kind of like transplanting it into the future and so there was a lot of discussion of her feeling so restless and feeling so like anxious she couldn't even get out of bed but then her being like oh I feel so guilty because I'm safe in my little bubble at home and there are people who are dying and you know back on earth and blah 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 so it was very obviously a call out to the same kind of discourses that were happening um recently and it it felt very forced. Very forced. And that it settled like dead weight right in the middle oh, of yeah, the novel. Yeah. Um, it's a short novel. So, and by that point, we'd gotten the ball rolling with the time travel. Like he had gone back in time. He'd visited a couple people. And then we just had this random chunk of her talking about, you know, the political implications and social implications and she does an interview as an author and they're like blah 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 what's your inspiration she's like well there's death all around us because there's an ambulance that rushes by and it's like wow solid like that wasn't happening like we weren't turning on our news and seeing this happen you know the death toll rise and the COVID-19 toll rise um so I feel like yeah it definitely felt very like if it had been integrated in a better way. Yeah, it just was not integrated. It just wasn't very well integrated and it stopped the plot from moving forward. Um, if it had been put in before or just if the novel had been longer, yeah, um, then it wouldn't have felt quite so much like a d we had to dwell there yeah. um, and then moving on. Um, but because we didn't get that, we got one short story per person um, and then... We had the time travel introduced, so we were kind of moving with that. And then we just stopped that and did this little side plot. And then we went back to this. Yeah. And she tried to put the, the plot in with having him visit her, but it was just poorly done and very annoying. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Did you have a character that you would have liked to see more? Well, no, I, my favorite character was Gaspari, actually. I really liked him too. He was very endearing to me. Mm. Um, he had this like hapless younger brother vibe, which just made me want to protect him. <laughs> um, because he, he's like, he's not smart <laughs> and he makes bad decisions and he knows that he makes bad decisions and he does it anyway. Not because he's like reckless or heartless, but because he just doesn't really like he doesn't really self-reflect and he's not he's not self-critical I think like he when he decides to break the rules he doesn't beat himself up over it he just says you know what this is what I'm gonna do I can't go through with this mm. and just does it and through his like training process which gets condensed to like a paragraph mm. you know we get told that he is constantly reminded that he can't 
uh, change things and that there is all of these rules he can't break and he has to be completely uh, neutral and not get involved and blah, blah, blah. And he says, yep, 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 that's fine. Even though everything that we know about the character is indicative that like he's not well placed for this role at all. And it was very bizarre that they hired him as well. Well, the reason that he gets hired is because of, I mean, his sister's in the Institute. Um, but the reason being that the guy who was his friend or whatever um, didn't meet his hiring quotas. Yeah. That's what, what it was. So he was like, okay, I'll just like, but I think one of the most ing- indicative like things of this character was that when he gets told about the trackers and that one of the agents tore out her tracker and fed it to her cat and the cat came back yes. and he, the only thing he has in response to that was you didn't tell me my cat was a time traveler <laughs> to his sister that's his response not mm. the oh my god how did like how did that even work was the cat how is the cat alive can non-humans time travel he doesn't have any of those questions his question is i can't believe you gave me my cat and you didn't tell me that my cat was a time traveler before me like yeah. it was just such a funny little endearing passage to him and also when spoilers uh in the final chapters when he decides to not return to his time uh he tells his sister to please take care of my cat and i was like "Ah." very sweet and and he had a dog later on as well oh yeah in his new life yeah um i will say with the plot Mm. i didn't see it coming yeah the violinist thing yeah yeah didn't see the violinist thing coming yeah, i only I. got it in one of the very end chapters um where at the beginning um massive spoilers by the way this is the plot so <laughs> don't if you haven't definitely click away at this point um but at the very beginning when he talks about the violinist he goes his he had a purple eyes he must have done it in his youth right and then i only got the it's the same person when it went, oh no, what if I get recognized? I need to have a face thing. And he recognized the face. I went, oh my God, he's the violinist. Um, and I and I only got it from that. So, but I really liked, I think, again, the novel would have been maybe more interesting if it hadn't been centered around the simulation theory. Yes. She said it was her springboard and it kind of focalized her entire time travel narrative, but I would have been more interested if we'd just expanded from the anomaly. Like that was the, that was the most interesting as a, as a lay person who knows nothing about science. The most interesting part of the science in this novel was the anomaly who like, um, all of these characters overlapping at once. Um, you know, this this glitch in our system. Um, a lot of people who didn't like this called it, oh, you borrowed it from the Matrix. And I was like, mm, it's a common enough trope, so whatever. Um, but, you know, I just think we didn't really dwell long enough on what the anomaly was. Um, obviously, at the very end, it gets revealed that the anomaly is because he meets himself in time at that particular moment so everyone who's ever been at that moment gets sucked into the little well that's what I didn't understand Mm. and I think upon reading this it did confuse me and I don't know if I just didn't get it right or if it's a bit sloppy Um, but the idea is that he he meets himself and 
the author is there at the same time. So she gets affected. But how do the other characters get affected? So every single time that the anomaly occurs, it's because he's there. So with Edwin, he has the anomaly occur because he's there waiting for him outside the trees to do the interview. But it's only when he meets another person that it happens? No, every time he goes back to that maple tree. But why the maple tree? Because... I don't know. <laughs> he, like, he... Sorry. He time-travelled... He time-travelled into that world and he was the priest. He dressed up as the yes. priest. And he met a lot of other people, mm. but presumably. It was, so, it was that... So, there's... So, the one moment is the, the violinist... So, the... An original anomaly occurs from him meeting his past self. Yes. So that would be his violinist playing self at the airship terminal when his future self pops into time for the first time. Yep. And meets him. Yep. And that and creates then, the anomaly. And that anomaly. creates the spark. And then from every other... So it's, it's the resonance is every other time that his past self is comes into contact with his future self in that moment so because of those two things the anomaly flicks back to a moment in time when he is further back in time right so the whole reason that it happens at the maple tree it's weird because he goes there once or twice he goes there twice yeah okay right yeah once with vincent when she's filming and the second time with edwin when he because and Ironically, the reason why, like paradoxically, haha, the reason why he's there in the first place for both of them is because he's trying to categorize the anom anomaly. So in doing, in being there at that time, he creates further anomaly. Yes, right. Because it is the moment when he shouldn't be, because it's he's displaced out of time. So yes. he shouldn't be there. And because he yeah. shouldn't be there, the two moments of the maple tree and the violinist get overlapped. Okay. And as you can tell from this entire confusing conversation, the time travel isn't super well explained. I mean, no. it's kind of just a thing where you have to, okay, yeah. sure, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And especially because it's like an adult speculative fiction, um, it's a bit of suspension of disbelief there. I think so, mm. yeah. Um. And, oh, speaking of, Vincent and the characters from The Glass Hotel. Yes. Mm, what I love about The Glass Hotel is that, again, revealing little tidbits throughout the story. You don't know it's a posse scheme until three quarters of the way through. And that's like the cool part of it because you're like, what did he go to jail for? How did they break up? Blah, 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 blah. Um, why did she lose this friendship? Why did that happen? Um, so if you read Sea of Tranquility before The Glass Hotel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it gets spoiled for you. Yes. Every single thing that happens in that novel will be spoiled for you. Um, so I know that you had a bone to pick with it being mm. called standalone novel, even though technically you have to have read The Glass Hotel um, if you don't want spoilers for it. Like, it carries it well enough. Um, like in Sea of mm. Tranquility, the characters are explained well enough that you don't have to read The Glass Hotel before you read Sea of Tranquility in order to understand kind of like the interconnections the relationships but at the same time if you don't read it then 
that if you ever want to go back and read that book, you know exactly what's going to happen because the entire story is centered around that happening. Yes. And I think as well that uh, particularly for Vincent and Mari- Marilla. Marilla, it uses the Glass Hotel, the Sea of Tranquility uses the Glass Hotel as a crutch for characterization. So we're given so little about Marilla and Vincent um, that we don't, we aren't made to care about them because it's assumed that you have read The Glass Hotel and already care about them. Especially Vincent. Yeah. Like, it, because it's focused around Marilla, Marilla's perspective, um, you kind of get everyone else on the periphery. And Vincent is like, she's the protagonist of The Glass Hotel. All of the story centers around her feelings and understandings. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't read it, then you have no sympathy for her. Yeah, none whatsoever. Um yeah, and there's there's some like uh, references to uh, in the Sea of Tranquility. Vincent is recording the anomaly with a little handheld camera, uh, which she does in the Glass Hotel to capture someone's ghost or something. That's how she dies. She falls overboard. Um, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. Um, and it also so the recording another major plot point in it is that the recording was what she did in her childhood um mostly and that then her brother finds those films and uses them in his art without permission Hmm. so a lot of her personal life gets exposed um and she doesn't find out about this until later way way later in the novel and she goes what basically what the fuck paul Hmm. um and it's a massive plot point that you know she, you hear all about her recording things and documenting things in her life, yeah. And then all of that gets exposed for his art, yeah. Um, but of course, if you don't know any of that, then it just comes off in the sea of tranquility as oh, yeah, kitschy guy. little. Um, she recorded things. Yeah. How fun and unique of her. Um, and none of it gets explained because you assume assumed knowledge from Glass Hotel, yeah. I, I don't think it should be marketed as a standalone. I think there was nothing in the um, kind of synopsis that indicated that it would have so much overlap. Um, and I had to go to the comments in Goodreads <laughs> to see. And I was like, oh, interesting, because I actually hadn't read The Glass Hotel. Yes. Oh, no. So I have been spoiled. But to be honest, I, I think out of her books, it would be the one that I would be least interested in. Um, I liked it because I didn't know what a posse scheme was. <laughs> so I learned yeah. all about it yeah. through the... Education. Yeah, kind of a fun little educational moment. Yeah. Um, so I really liked it because, again, I didn't know what it was, so I didn't recognise it. I feel like this is a common theme of me enjoying Emily St. John Mandel novels, is that I don't actually know anything about the stuff she's talking about, so I can enjoy them as a casual reader of mm. those things. Um so yeah yes yeah yeah and i mean as you said it's not like you have no idea what's going on if you haven't read the glass hotel but it does take away some of the satisfaction that i think she was banking on um and it just gives you kind of yeah thin unsatisfying characters who we don't really have any reason to care about um and yeah so that goes for pretty much all of the surrounding characters as well like um there was some extra characters on the moon. Talia. Gas- Talia. Didn't really care about her. Um, I actually thought that the nightless... No. 
what was no, it? the night city the night city i thought that was such a good idea so cool yeah so basically the idea um and and i will say that the settings actually genuinely yes. very interesting yes the way she writes yes place and setting is obviously very good and i would say you, earlier you said that i think character is her strong uh, point i would say that i think the creation of time and place is her strongest point for me in that um, I'm thinking about Station Eleven, where you had the caravan and you had all of these like extra people who were part of the caravan, and they all of them didn't get names. They were like first violin, second guitar, things like that. And so you were just introduced to like one or two salient features about that character, and the effect of that wasn't to create these amazing complex dynamic characters, but this like sense of community and family. Um, and time and place in this like post-pandemic world um, which ended up being like a character in and of itself so I think that she introduced this really really interesting setting with the night city which was basically one of the colonies the poorer colony um, whose dome um, which was supposed to project artificial sunlight had stopped working and so uh, the people there basically lived in darkness um yeah, so um, it was called. So it's there's Colony One and Colony Two, um, and so Colony Two basically um, there's I- the idea that all of them have domes over them for obviously oxygen purposes to live there, um, and that when it stopped working, they could look up and just see space reflected on it, or um, like the sun when it came by. So there was no sense of like proper. Um, daytime moments, daytime, nighttime in the 24-hour sense. Um, so a lot of the characters grew up, like, um, it, it's mentioned later on that they have to wear special glasses when they visit the other colonies because they have grown up in darkness um, and bright, intense sunlight. Um, so they've experienced it's more space in the traditional sense. Um, and I do, I do think, maybe I amend my statement a little bit in the sense that I do really love the way that she writes her places. Um, mainly, I like the characters for the little tidbits. How much can you give me about this character? Um, and she, what I will say, she um, she calls it a multiverse, um, the Glass Hotel and the um, Sea of Tranquility. She's like, well, it's more of like a, if, if it's a cinematic uh, metaphor, it's more like a multiverse. Um, but what I will say with that is, if anyone's read Folk of the Air by Holly Black... Um, completely different genre, that's fantasy, but there's a fun little multiverse happening in The Cruel Prince, if you will, where the, all the fae courts that visit are from her previous novels. So, um, The Teeth trilogy and uh, The Darkest Part of the Forest, a couple of those characters show up. They aren't integral, like some of them are, like they have a little bit more of a reoccurring moment, but you don't have to have read those other novels in order to understand these people. They just kind of appear and if it's a fun little, oh, I know you, but it's not necessary. So, but I feel like in this sense, it was to an extent necessary that you understand the inner workings of the characters in the Glass Hotel. Yeah, and and, and potentially not for their plot significance because characters like Marilla and Vincent, they serve a very, very limited purpose. It's Gaspary who's kind of like, you know, putting all the wheels in motion. But in a novel that's so short and, like, the plot is so limited, those characters just end up being dead weight. 
and it's kind of like why do we need to spend so much time why do we even need to go into their backstories if they're only serving such a limited purpose um but yeah so back uh with regards to the colonies the moon colonies the title of the novel also came from that setting which is when i think the characters can look out of the dome onto the moon and they see just kind of this like quiet silent gray like the surface of the moon or like reflection of space or whatever it's like a salt flat lake yeah that's what they called it something like that and that was the sea so the sea of tranquility yeah which um to be completely honest with you I don't understand why that was the title. The title. Neither do I. It doesn't have, like, it's a fun little reference that it's included. Maybe it's a scientific reference. I don't know. Um, but the a sea of tranquility doesn't actually capture any of this the sentiment of the novel. Um, he, has, he achieves a sense of peace by the end. Um, maybe peace in time after disruption in time. But nothing actually awful happens to him. Um, he doesn't actually, like, he goes to prison um but he doesn't he has a great time he has a great time um he doesn't like it's not like a a problem for him again um like leaning into the idea that he's not self-reflexive so he's just like oh yeah i mean i broke the rules so i'm in prison um but it's not a bad time in prison um and then he gets off relatively scot-free like his sister rescues him he gets another life he gets this he gets married to talia who was his original childhood friend um slash you know lover whatever um so yeah you know i i just feel like in terms of consequences there weren't a lot of consequences so i don't understand why you know for me if it was sea of tranquility by the end after a very tumultuous period then he achieved the sea of tranquility or or could go there Mm -hmm. then that makes more sense but there wasn't any of that yeah, or if there was some sort of metaphorical meaning to the Sea of Tranquility, like it had some relevance to the time travel plot or the simulation theory plot, um, but it just didn't seem to have any relevance at all. So, yeah. It was a, a, bit, it was a pretty phrase, I think. It was pretty. And I, like, I don't pretend to know what I would call the novel, um, if I would call it anything else. Um, Gasprey's Adventures in Time. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people did say it, it reads like bad detective fiction. Um, and I suppose naming it that would give give it away who the, who the protagonist is because we don't really meet him until later. Yeah, I, um, I think there's so many things you could call this book. Um, or what I really would have liked is to read something set on that colony. I think yeah. that would, would have been very interesting. Let's, let's read more. Give us more about the Night City. Mm. Um you know, about the progression, because we jump back and forward. So we, we read about it um, with Olive um, Lewin. Um, she lives there when it still works, and then it flickers. And she's like, hmm, that's weird. Why is it flickering? Um, and then we get later on, when obviously when um, Zoe and Gaspari grow up, there's no screen. But we don't really see the progression. Um, and, like, I would have loved to have seen a character who lived in both times who then watched that break down. How did they adjust? Was there anything different? Um, if we'd centered it around the Night City, it would have been mm. a little bit more interesting. And it was such a cool name. Yeah. Night City. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Had a lot of potential. Had a lot of potential. I don't know. Maybe Call book, it number the Night City. F- book number four um, in the multiverse, perhaps. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
overall, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was a nice story. It felt like a short story that just got stretched beyond its capabilities. And she is a short story writer. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is um, a short story idea that perhaps got workshopped um, into something bigger. I didn't like it as much as Station Eleven, which I felt was a much more comprehensive project. Um, And I think I'm suspicious of fiction that gets watered down into, you know, these bite-sized ideas about humanity or life or... A lot of people called it fake deep. And definitely I feel like what I did like about... What I did love about Station Eleven and even, you know, um, The Glass Hotel was that they had meaningful things because it was more to it, right? It was just longer. Um, So you had more meaning attached to the characters' lives and the plot and the progression. Whereas I feel like this one, as you said, um, there's a trend in contemporary literature to write these short chapters um, because we're all losing our attention spans, (laughs) which I get. Um, But it, it, you just lose the the depth of actually having a long longer sort of novel mm. um if she'd like it was only 230 pages or something if it had been like make it 350 that's a solid number expand a little more on everyone and then give your message a little bit more meaning mm. um than these random bite-sized chunks and yep. a chapter that's <clears throat> only one page or three sentences and, you know, it, it's snappy and when done well, interesting. <laughs> but in general, I just it just didn't work for me in this novel. It just, yep. it just didn't work. So, yeah, a bit, a bit disappointing. Um, I think, I mean, her writing for me can do no wrong. She's got beautiful writing style. Um, I just think that the characters let it down a little bit in this and the, the fact that it was such a short plot mm. and I literally read most of this in one day yeah. over four hours and then parked it yeah, and then couldn't finish it. <laughs> yeah, so, I struggled as well. Mm. I think there's just, um, I'm not, I'm not interested in books that try to make sweeping generalizations about the human condition. I'm more intrigued by books that give a very detailed account or uh, try to represent the experience of somebody um, who, you know, doesn't attempt to collect the entire human experience into one character. Or I, I, I think there's a purpose to be served by like novels that do do like a sweeping kind of thing. Like we were talking about Ur- Ursula K. Le Guin earlier and she's a great e- example um, of trying to like, e- capture that but uh, you need time <laughs> you just need time it you can't do a 230 page novel about oh my gosh I, I don't even know what the message was no really. it's actually it mm, now that I think about it I'm like what was it genuinely trying to say that we should yeah maybe that that we should look out for others that some rules are meant to be broken mm, you won't suffer any consequences for them uh we're all more um united than we think i think there was a a bit of a sense of we need to be connected which is a very post-covid kind of message 
did did it need a whole book? Maybe not. And also just feels like such a lackluster message yeah. to leave your audience. Mm, be more connected with each other. I mean, I feel like we don't need to be told that. We've all lived through it. We mm-hmm. all are seeking connection and we all don't know how to connect anymore because conventional um, like things that appeal to us post like pre-COVID mm. have now lost its luster. Mm. So I feel like maybe in a couple years the message will ring a little bit more true Mm. but for 2022 everyone is struggling with connection so to tell us be more connected Mm. seems like a very obvious message to point to people yes so with that being said would you recommend the sea of tranquility out of her works Probably not. Mm. I'd go for read Station Eleven yeah. or read The Glass Hotel if you're not a speculative fiction girly. Um, in general, if you're looking for something short and interesting and punchy about some time travel moments, it's got a fun twist. I didn't see the twist coming, so and the writing is relatively well done. If you don't care, then sure, read it. Uh, three stars. Yeah, I, I would say similar. Uh, three stars. I think I rated it. Maybe even less if you don't have an appreciation of her work, if you haven't read much speculative fiction, or if you just don't have the time and you want to read only the best books that are going to take your breath away. And that's kind of been my um, approach on and off, is when I get really busy or when I'm just in that kind of mood, I'm like, I, I don't want to waste my time and I feel like if that is your approach at the moment I would not read this book but life's too short to read mediocre fiction it yeah it really is um but are you reading anything at the moment that perhaps isn't mediocre or you're hoping is not mediocre uh yes um in the contemporary fiction genre but it's a bit more of a satire um it's called woman eating women eating oh yeah love Mm, Claire Fonda yes and very um, interesting um, take on the Sally Rooney sad girl uh, novel where she is shy and reserved and everything because she's a vampire and she's actively trying not to kill people. Queen. Um, so it's really interesting to see like the, the sad girl novel, but from the perspective of someone who doesn't necessarily have to be a sad girl, but she has, she has to be reserved and shy and not do anything because she's a vampire <laughs> and she can't give it away. So it's her trying to navigate like contemporary society, but through that lens. Um, so very interesting. Yes. Um, I also just finished Our Wives Under the Sea. Uh, by Julia Armfield, her debut fiction. Oh, yeah, I really want to read that. Gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. It's about a woman whose wife comes back from a deep sea mission. Um, She's supposed to be gone for three weeks, ends up being gone for six months, and comes back wrong, little off. Mm. And it was so interesting. It's such a great study on intimacy and loss and, um, you know, not monstrosity, but just the unfathomable depths of humanity um paralleled with the depths of the ocean um so very cool yeah what are you reading what's on your shelf something similar i'm finally i finally got around to reading night bitch yay which such um, a good book it is very good by rachel yoda um i'm almost done with it um it's great it's about a woman it's about a mother Stay at home mom who starts turning into a dog, basically. Basically. Um, but obviously it's about it's so much more. Wild ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's great. It's really funny sometimes. It's really, like, scary at other times. Like, it just creeps up on you. 
until you're like, I hate children. Like, if a child is here right now, I want to, like, kick it like a football. They're so horrible. It's such an interesting perspective because it's a story about a mother. But, um, you know, and it's just such a, a subversion of, like, contemporary motherhood. Like, you have to be everything for your child and we love children. It's just, you've got that pendulum swing of fuck children, which is so interesting. Yeah, she has this really complex relationship with her son um, where she loves him so much sometimes and then she kind of creates this alter ego called night bitch because in the night when she's like trying to sleep and he won't sleep she, she releases her anger um and her husband one night says you know you're, you're a real bitch during the night or something like that and she starts calling herself night bitch but it is a great book i'm really enjoying it um i feel like we're gonna have to do an episode soon about these sorts of books because we're both really into them about kind of contemporary female experience unhinged contemporary female yeah, unhinged experience. Women experience. Um, so yeah lots to look forward to it was good to sit down and chat it's been a while but hopefully this trimester we're gonna get out some more episodes for you guys um but yeah as yeah. always happy reading and thanks for tuning in thank you guys see you later bye, bye.